The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. Delighted to have you all here again. Delighted to have my brother and sister and their son with us, Teresa's sister. They've been with us in the past. Peter is a junior, now just finished his junior year at Iowa State, getting ready to go to Vietnam for six, eight weeks on mission. Uh, excited to see God's hand in his life. Open your Bibles to Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49. Beginning in Isaiah 41, God begins to use the language of servant. Servant. And I take the title for this year's class out of these texts. Christ is the servant Savior. This book is proclaiming good news. It uses that language of gospel for the first time in Isaiah 40. We see the language of servant show up first in Isaiah 41, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. And it seems as though he's focused there on the nation. Then in Isaiah 42, behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I've put my spirit on him and he will bring justice for the nations. So this is where we were last week, Isaiah 42, and I said, it seems as though the servant here is different than the servant that surrounds him. This servant is one who moves toward the broken. The other servant is one who is broken. Isaiah 42, at the end of the chapter, we read, Hear you deaf, look you blind, that you may see who is blind but my servant. The servant is spiritually disabled. Broken. And the the servant is the one to whom the other servant is coming. Then we move on and we read in Isaiah 43.10, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I've chosen. Witnesses is plural. Servant is singular. Yet the servant is witnesses. You are my witnesses that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He, before me there is no God. Isaiah 44, Hear now, O Jacob, my servant, Israel whom I've chosen. I made you. I'm the one who formed you from the womb. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant. And he goes on and he begins, it seems as though, to talk about his people, not a person. Isaiah 44, remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you, you are my servant. Again there, I think he's talking about the people. 45, again talking about the people. For the sake of my servant Jacob, verse 4, Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. This is a servant that doesn't know God versus a servant that does know God. We could keep going, but we come all the way to Isaiah 49. There's this back and forth. The servant is always singular, but sometimes the servant is filled with filth, and sometimes the servant is moving toward that filth in order to clean it up. Read with me now in Isaiah 49, The next two weeks, we're on this text. 1 through 13 is what we're going to read right now. Lord, open your word to us. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. 
He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, that is the one who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, whom he has, who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I answered you, In a day of salvation, I helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. From verses 1 to 13, there is a single voice talking to us in first person. Listen to me, O coastlands. The Lord called me from the womb. So it's not Yahweh talking to us directly. All of this is from God. But but right now he is speaking through the voice of one that he tags the servant In verse 3, you, he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. The text starts with a command from this servant who's named Israel. If you are hearing my voice, listen, heed. So I say, the servant calls the coastlands to receive his mission. His voice is going out beyond the borders of Israel into the far reaches of the Mediterranean Sea. And I think the picture is the utter ends of the earth. It's going out. Listen, receive what I'm about to tell you about myself. And then at the end, the command comes back in verse 13. Sing for joy. O heavens, exalt, O earth. So now he moves beyond the sphere of the world as we know it, all the way into the universal realm calling for joy to be the response to what he's about to give us. So this this whole unit is framed by two groups of commands. Listen, sing. The first is the call to receive what he's about to say, and the last is the call to respond rightly to what he's about to say. So if we go through these two weeks and you don't arrive at joy, you haven't heard rightly. You got me? This is about hedonism. About seeing something awakened in our hearts of awe before the one who's talking to us in this text. So let's let's dive in. The servant calls the coastlands to receive his mission. Listen to me, O coastlands. Give attention, you peoples from afar. Notice, just off right off the bat here, um, that he's addressing people that aren't near him. That's where we all start. We're not near this servant, we're far away from this servant. And yet his voice is able to carry through all time, into every culture, across every mountain, and over every sea. 
listen. And, and that is a, in a book that, that where Isaiah's mission is, keep listening but don't hear. Keep, keep looking but don't see. Lest you see with your eyes and hear with your ears and turn and be healed. Where Isaiah's entire mission is one of judgment. Talking to a spiritually disabled people. Back in chapter 43, that's how they were portrayed. Or was it at the end of 42? Let's see. At the end of 42. Hear you deaf, look you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Who is deaf as my messenger who I send? That's, that's God's people. And now this servant is calling people who don't have ears to hear, to hear. To see something inward awakened that isn't awakened yet. As far as the coastlands. One and two. This servant's preparation. Notice when it started. The Lord called me from the womb. His entire life is characterized by what we're about to read. From the very beginning, the very earliest stages, this has been what he as a person has been set aside for, what we're about to read in this text. From the womb he called me, from the body of my mother he named my name. Now, just look at verses 1 through 3 for a second at a series of pairings. What we have is, is, is a group of lines where there's a first line given and then a second line that restates it in a different way. And then another line is given and then there's another restatement. Six total lines, three statements repeated. And in each of these lines, we see parallel forms. So, on the one hand, there's a focus on Service. He's called to a certain goal. The Lord called me, and we would be saying, to what end? We read in verse 2, He made my mouth like a sharp sword. So, so the, his, his calling is related to a speaking ministry. It uses the language of an arrow, where it's like on the move. Able to reach not only sword, things up close, but able to reach things with target precision that are far away. This is about his role as a servant of the Lord. Which is the final thing that we read, you are my servant. But then there's the other side. And all of it focuses on his identity. One, he has a name that he was given from the womb. Verse, two, verse 1. Number 2, he, he is hidden. And both lines in verse 2 give us that image. In the shadow of his hand he hid me, in his quiver he hid me away. Suggesting that there's something about his identity that is not fully disclosed. That there's something about his ministry that is more removed and not up front. And then finally... It says his name is Israel. I'm saying his because servant is a person. It, you are, he, he named me. He's talking about himself. And his tag is that he's Israel. Now when I think of Israel, I'm thinking 12 tribes. I'm thinking the nation. And through this one, he's just convinced my identity is about God's glory. That's what it says in verse 3. You are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. That's just God's declaration. It's going to happen. Through me, this voice says, God's going to be exalted over all things. He's going to be made much of. Like a, a telescope magnifies a distant moon, taking that which is massive but which cannot be seen rightly by the naked eye. Through me, he's going to be made much of, magnified in a great way so that you can see him more for all of his glory. That's my role, he says. So we've got these parallelings related to his service 
and his identity. Now we read, From the body of my mother he named my name. It's an interesting element as we walk through the Bible, through the Old Testament in particular, climaxing in the life of Mary, how much the Bible wants to draw attention to the mom. Not just generally, but, but specifically a, a woman. We already saw it in Isaiah 7. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. She has a makeup, an identity. She is a person. Indeed, all the way back to Genesis, we've been anticipating a specific role for a woman. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, Satan, and Eve, but she's not named yet that. She's not named that yet. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. There's an offspring that's going to come from the woman. And we could carry that through, for example, the hope of the woman giving birth to the offspring. I think that this is the very reason why when we're in the book of Kings and they divide 20 kings in the north and 20 kings in the south, Israel, Judah, that of the 20 kings in the north, not one of them is the mother mentioned when it tells us about him. But in the, there, there's a pattern by which we learn about each king in the book of Kings. And in the northern kings, the mother is never mentioned. But of the 19 kings in the south, all related to Judah, all of them related to the line of David, with all 19 that include the, there's 20 kings, but only 19 of them have, have the, a pattern given them, an introduction to their kingship. Of those 19... 17 of them mention their mother. And the two that don't mention the mother are explicitly united with Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the Israelite king in the north, who made the altar in Dan and the altar in Bethel. They're linked with him, and so the mother isn't mentioned. None of the kings in the north that are not associated with David get the mother's name, and then the two Judean kings that are directly associated in the text with Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, neither of them get the mother's name, but all the rest, the mother is mentioned. And I think it's designed to remind us of the promise. We're looking for the offspring who will come through the woman. This climax is all the way in Revelation chapter 12 when it says the woman finally gives birth. And she has a son whom God protects for 1260 or 1290 days, I don't remember, which I understand to be the period of the church age. And the, the serpent, the dragon, cannot get near him. As much as he tries, he can't put an end to the life of her son or the life of the woman. From the womb, the he's been named and in the body of his mother. Here's Psalm 22. This is the psalm of all psalms that the New Testament quotes in relation to the death of Christ. And the psalmist says, You are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from birth, and from my mother's womb you've been my God. So, I just ask myself, why is it mentioning the mother here? What does it do for us just seeing that this servant Israel was called from the womb? Not from heaven. It doesn't specify that. From the womb, he's had a purpose. Indeed, from the body of his mother, God named his name. What does that do for us as we consider the so what of this reality? Like, why this information at this point, Isaiah? Why did, why did you give us this? Anyone? These facts are different than the nation of Israel. Uh, Israel was not named Israel later in his life. 
Okay. So you'll recall the story of how Israel became Israel. What was Israel's original name? Jacob. It's a person. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And what does Jacob's name mean? Pardon? Ankle grabber. Schemer. Betrayer. Something like that. And then he wrestles with God. And the whole journey, up until that point in the story, every time he talks about God, he calls him my father Abraham's God. My father Abraham's God. It's never his God. And then, then we begin to see a progression. He wrestles with the angel of the Lord. His hips put out a socket, and he gets a new name. Israel. Israel. And it most likely means one who has striven with the Lord. One who is, who is strived with God, specifically. Sarah, to strive. Ale, God. Yisrael, he will strive with God. That's what it would mean. The point was... The nation was not named Israel from the womb. And so the fact that even we have this mention that from the womb you were named Israel, this could be a signal to us, oh, we should be thinking about Israel in a different way. This is, is this the nation? Probably not. And I'm going to argue that it's not very quickly. But what other element does the very fact that this servant is born in the womb tell us? That he's a man. That this servant is 100% human. And that's essential for the entire story of the gospel. Because a man, humans are the ones who've sinned, and humans are the ones who must pay underneath the just wrath of God. And this servant is going to bear the role of saving sinners. And the only way he can do it is as a man. In order for God's just wrath to be poured out and for mercy to be given to anyone. So he's fully human and he is the one that God promised would come as a servant of God to fix a human problem. There's another text that mentions the mother from the same time as Isaiah in the book of Micah, familiar text, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient times. Micah's speaking around 740 B.C., 740 years before Jesus will show up, roughly. And yet he's saying from ancient times, ancient times, you've been foretold like Genesis 3.15. And then it says, Therefore, he shall give them up, the nation, until the time when she who is in labor is given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand, this one who will come forth from the womb, and he will shepherd his flock. The one who will be born in Bethlehem and work on behalf of his people. We continue. Sword and arrow. Have you ever found it strange that it says, his mouth will be like a sharp sword? Indeed, in the shadow of his hand it will be hidden. He made me a polished arrow, in his quiver he hid me away. So let's just focus on those two lines. My mouth is like a sword. Indeed, I'm a polished arrow. What does it mean that the mouth is like a sword? Words cut. And this one is coming in, we already saw in Isaiah 42, to work justice for those who've been oppressed. A bruised reed he won't break. A faintly burning wick he won't blow out. If you find yourself on the side of the one who's been oppressed and you're trusting God, he will come with vengeance against his enemies. 
and all of a sudden, this text comes in. Isaiah 42 is focusing on the, the mercy ministry of the servant. Isaiah 49 now declares, his mouth will be like a sharp sword. And as he speaks, it will be like piercing into the soul. A dagger into the heart. Look at how Isaiah 11 talked about the spirit-empowered king. With righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. What does that mean? He declares judgment on them. He declares judgment on them. His words have power. All he has to do is speak and curse comes. When we think about the last battle culminating at the end of the age, the way that it portrays the slaughter is a different kind of battle than you and I are used to. In his right hand, this one that's being envisioned in the book of Revelation, he held seven stars and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the, signing, the sun shining in full strength. When he speaks, it's piercing. And then at the end of the book, from his mouth, the one riding on a white horse at the culmination of the ages, at the, the, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. We're not supposed to have in our mind, I don't think we're supposed to be thinking, wow, so there's going to be a guy that's got a, a sword sticking out of his mouth and he's just going to be whipping his head around, chopping people up. No, the point is, he simply has to speak and the devil has to flee. Indeed, he speaks. That's all he has to do. That's what kind of power he has. The one who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown into our hearts. We were the enemy and he changed us that quick. Just his word. That's all he's got to do is just speak it and it happens. Right now, as I've said so many times, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 he is upholding all things right now by the word of His power. He's just speaking, and you and I are breathing. And if He stops speaking, we will stop existing. But He'll never stop speaking. Never. All He has to do is speak. And his words are like a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations. He'll rule them with a rod of iron. He'll tread down the white press of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. That is all the enemies of the entire world. Every creature, every evil power that has followed Satan from the beginning to the end... Every one of them slain by the mouth, by the sword that came from his mouth. All he has to do is speak. That's this one that we're reading about. Listen to the one who has the sword coming from his mouth. That's good. Very, very good. Look at verses 3 and 4. God's identification of the servant. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. I said, I've labored in vain. I've, I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet, this I know, my right is with the Lord, my recompense with God. The servant... That's his role, has a name. Say it all with me. His name is Israel. Israel. Now, just turn back with me to Isaiah 42, 18 through 22. <clears throat> Isaiah 42, 18 through 22. This is the third time servant shows up in this section of the book. 
And I want you to see something. It says, hear you deaf. Look, you blind. Both of those yous are plural, even though we can't see that in the English text. He's talking to a group. Who is blind but my servant? My servant is singular. But that one singular entity is representing a nation that can be plural, blind. Plural, death. Who is blind is my dedicated one. Or blind is the servant of the Lord. He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for His righteousness' sake to magnify His law, to make it glorious in their midst. But this people, the servant, is a people. And they're deaf and blind. This people plundered and looted. They're all, all of them, trapped in holes, hidden in prisons. They can't see. They're not free. They're all of them bound up. They've become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. Look at chapter 43, verse 8 now. Bring out the people, plural, talking about the nation, that are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather and the peoples assemble. Verse 10, you, plural you, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. You are my servant, whom I've chosen, that you, plural, may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any God after me. So the servant here is blind and it's a people. But back earlier in chapter 42, as we saw last week, there's another servant. His name, he's called that in 42.1, Behold my servant whom I uphold. This very one, verse 7 says, will come to open up the eyes of the blind. The servant is a people and they're blind. The servant is the very mediator through whom God will open up blind eyes. The servant back in chapter 49 now, we're told, will have a life that glorifies God, not a life filled with disobedience. This servant has words worth listening to. Words that will be penetrating. I'm proposing he's not the people, but he's here to work on behalf of them. Look now at verse 6. Just let your eye jump down there for a second. The same person is talking. Verse 3 said, And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel. Verse 6, he says he is talking about God, and the one who's talking to us is the same servant. What did God say to him? Not only did he call him my servant Israel, he said it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Look at that. Your name is Israel. And it's too light a thing that you should bring back the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. You're my servant, Israel, and it's too small of a thing that you would restore Israel. How does that work? How does Israel bring back Israel? Israel's mission in this text is to bring back the tribes of Jacob who are now scattered, who are blind, who are sick, who are outside the camp. They've been kicked out. And it's Israel's role as the servant of God to go redeem them. Israel's role is to save Israel. And that's why I think we're not talking about Israel the nation that is blind and deaf and disobedient. We're talking about Israel, the person who perfectly in his body is going to represent 
the nation before God and secure them salvation. But we're going to see it is massively important theologically that we have a category for Jesus to be Israel. The New Testament authors are going to build on this as we're going to see in so many ways. Because what is promised to Israel the nation is secured by Israel the person. And if you are identified with Israel the person, you can enjoy all the blessings that were promised to Israel the nation. And that's how the church inherits Old Testament promises. The servant's mission seems in vain. We're going to talk more about this momentarily. Look, let your eyes move down to verse 7 as I reread verse 4. I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet, my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. Package what that's saying as you look at verse 4. What do you think it's saying about his, the nature of his mission? How's he going to feel about his mission? How's the servant going to feel about his mission? Successful? Discouraged? Yet? What does the yet part of that verse 4 suggest? And he knows it. And because of that, he will persevere even when it's extremely difficult. So we read in verse 7, we're going to come to this next week. Thus says the Lord, the servant is still talking, the same servant person who represents the people. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, His Holy One. He's going to talk to one deeply despised. That's me, says the serpent, the servant. To one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation. Notice that the servant is here now contrasted with the nation. He's the one who's abhorred by the nation. The servant nation is blind and hard-hearted and on a different road, not following God. And they abhor the servant who is following God and serving God, the person. But he's abhorred by them. Nevertheless, he is the servant of rulers. We're going to see how, what that's talking about. It sets us right up for Isaiah 53. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Singular. That's what God said to me. I've chosen you. Kings will bow down. And yet, to his own nation, despised, abhorred. Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected by man, by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Yet, not my will, yours be done. He comes to the climax in the garden, not my will, yours be done. So I have a question. Go back to verse 4. Yes. I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. And we characterize that as a time of discouragement, words of discouragement. But in Christ's life, I mean, there were times he said, how, much, how long must I be with you? And in the garden, he said, you know, you know, do you will let, let this, or, you know, let this cup pass, but it's your will, and, you know, do this. But, but I see this as a, I've labored in vain, I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. I'm not sure I've seen that in the character of Christ in the New Testament in, in this strong way. And am I missing it, or, or am I trying to read too much into those few lines? The question is, do we really see that level of sense of emptiness, um, 
futility. In Hebrews chapter 5, it says, In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death, and He was heard because of His reverence. Loud cries and tears during the days of His flesh. I think that stretches back before the garden. The type of tension that we're going to see in the Gospel of Mark, the, the, the level of, oh, do you still not understand my disciples? Are you so much more like the world, not getting what I'm about to do? And, I mean, the... There may have been better English terms to try to capture these two words, um, potentially to temper them more than we might automatically think. What we have to be able to say, though, is that as low as he gets, the second half of verse 4 must still be true in his thinking. So however we use the language of vanity and nothingness. I mean, I, I think I would have to, I, I would probably wrestle to try to say, he, if I just read 4A and B, those first two lines, before the yet, if I read them on their own, it would sound like he already gave up. He already thinks that it's all for naught. But then when I read the, for C and D, it, it tells me, oh, he, ha he doesn't think it's all for naught. So we have to read in context, and we have to, um, even as a translator, consider, are there other words in English that I might use to try to capture something that, wouldn't, that, that still allows more easily for what we're reading at the end of verse 4? Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity, all's vanity. You know, the whole idea of hopelessness, helpless, hopelessness, really, is what it seems to me to convey. Is that a different word for vanity? Than in the, it's the same word. Okay. I mean, that's, I, you know, maybe I understand that wrong, but that's a pretty bleak word. I'm, I'm, try, I, I'm pretty sure it's the same word. And Chris is gone, so I can't ask him in my... No, that's all right. <laughs> Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's the same word. A lot of different Bible verses or concepts are coming to my mind, uh, including, you know, think about what Jesus was in Jerusalem before the Passover. Or, uh, yeah, Passover weekend. He's, he's crying out, you know, the, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how much I'd be like if, you know, the mother had gathered you and you wouldn't take me. Yes. You can hear the anguish. He was yes. Yes, the feeling of loss was, was very upfront, and that sense of why, why won't you listen, how long, and, and we have to match all of that human side of Christ with the fact that he understood fully what his purpose was, and he understood fully what the hearts of men were, and he only disclosed himself to those whom his father directed him to disclose himself to. So all of that is, is there. Yes. Right. Yes. And we're going to see the background to that text in Isaiah 53 when we get there. It's that future joy is what drives him. Look at 5 and 6 with me. And now the Lord says, you know the one who formed me from the womb? That one that I, I spoke of in verse 2, the Lord God called me from the womb. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant. Remember my name? My name is Israel. I mentioned that up in verse 3. That one who formed me from the womb to be his servant, 
to bring back Jacob to him, that Israel may be gathered to him. And then on a side note, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. This one has said, I don't know if this is what's at stake here, but it seems often apparent when you see both Israel and Jacob side by side that it's intended to recall something in the past. That here, the peoples of God that he, that, that is the children of Abraham, are given the two designations, the tribes of Jacob, the preserved of Israel. So, and the second line qualifies or gives clarity to the first line. So that in raising up the tribes of Jacob, they're all going to be represented, and yet it doesn't mean that everyone who's been part of these tribes is going to be saved. Indeed, it's going to be the preserved of Israel. But even in using the language, the language recalls the betrayer who's now being redeemed, the one who is striven with God with a new identity, it's this one that's being redeemed. So, Jacob, Israel, the one who betrays and the one who is striven with God. And I'm just wondering if Isaiah, even in the way that he's shaping this for us, is calling us to recall the, the beginning of this people as one who is against God, now being called called into God, as one who was transformed by God with a new name, just externally, now being preserved by God and redeemed. But it's all happening through the servant. Now we read this, something we saw in last week's text. It's too little of a thing, too light a thing, that you should be my servant to raise up the people of Israel. Never was the offspring of the woman just to redeem Israel. Abraham had to get to a point where he moved from being the father of one nation to a father of a multitude of nations. When his offspring would rise, when the stars would be multiplied, and his offspring would possess the gate of enemy nations. Meaning, not only his own gate, but where his territory is expanding. That's what they were waiting for. The day and the one through whom all the world would be blessed. It's too little of a thing that you would just restore Israel. I will make you a light to the nations. This was our text last week. I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I'll take you by the hand and keep you. I'll give you as a covenant for the people a light to the nations. To open eyes that are in darkness, now they'll see. We saw this back in Isaiah 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And Matthew quotes that text applying it. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Why he even starts in northern Galilee. The very place where Israel was first overcome from the northern peoples is the very place where light will dawn. And the one that the light is none other than the child who would be born, the son that would be given, upon whom the government of all peoples would rest. I am the light of the world, Jesus says. I think this is where he's getting it. It's why he's calling himself this. Well, it's, it's one reason why he's calling himself this. I've talked about Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, when he says, The one who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give us the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. The same was in the beginning with God. The Word was light, and the light was the life of men. That in the beginning, light, before even sun, moon, and stars were made, in my understanding, there was light. All you need for day and night is a fixed object of light and the earth moving around it. And the light was the life of men. And he's now entered into our world, bringing with him, with him 
all life. He would be a light to the nations. Now, I, I just want, in our, in our remaining time, we've got to package this, but I, I, I'm going to give you a framework here that I unpacked several weeks ago in my, in my faculty lecture. Some of you were there. But I want you to see the significance Try to see the significance for you in your daily walk with the Lord of using your whole Bible and not just the New Testament as Christian Scripture. Consider, God makes promises to Israel. As King, Christ represents the people. He is Israel. That's what the text says. He's Israel. All of God's promises find their yes in Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 1.20. Faith unites us to Christ, and therefore all those united to Christ will enjoy the promises that God gave Israel. So do you, do you want to go to Isaiah 41 and claim this text? Isaiah 41, it says explicitly, listen to me, sorry, but you, Israel, my servant... Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I've chosen you and not cast you out. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That was not given to us. That was declared to a nation. But that nation was represented by a person. And by faith, we unite with that person. And all of a sudden, this promise that Israel need not fear becomes the promise that you and I can cherish. Similarly, just turn over to Isaiah 43. In verse 10, the ones that he's talking to are going to be called the servant, my servant. But in Isaiah 43, this is what we read. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. They're redeemed, meaning that they were in prison. And now they're redeemed. This isn't the servant, the person. This is the servant, the nation. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. The flame shall not consume you. Why? For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. But because Jesus is Israel, and we can unite to Jesus by faith, all of a sudden the promises that are given to Israel, the nation, become ours. They become secured for us in Him. And all of a sudden, three-fourths more of the Bible becomes life to us as Christians. Because Jesus is the one who's claimed these promises because He is fully embodied the nation. Let's see this work actively. You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. This is the text that we're in. It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel. I'll make you as a light for the nations. And I've been saying, this is about Jesus. Yes, it's about Jesus. Paul says, I stand here testifying both the small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light. It's too light a thing that you would just return, re, uh, restore, redeem the Jews. I'll also make you a light to the Gentiles, to the nations. This is about Jesus. But earlier in the book of Acts, Paul had done something else. In Acts 13, he actually cites Isaiah 49. And notice what he says. The Lord has commanded me and Barnabas, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul, 
You're using your Bible in the wrong way. That was not about you. That was about the servant Savior. God didn't make that promise to you, Paul. He didn't give you that commission. He gave it to Jesus. And Paul would say, yes, he did. And I'm in Jesus and therefore I bear the same mission. That's how he's thinking. He's going to do the same thing with Isaiah 52, 7, as I said last week. How beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. The NIV still translates it plural, but it's singular, like it is in the ESV. How beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. And then Paul, in Romans 10, quotes that text, but makes it plural. Either he's misusing his Bible, or he's using his Bible theologically, that is, Christianly, thinking about his Old Testament promises through the lens of the cross. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, pronouncing peace, proclaiming news of happiness, declaring our God reigns. And that's the mission of the church. But it was, but we read that Isaiah text through the lens of Christ. God promises that his servant would be the light to the nations. Christ is this servant light. Faith unites us to Christ. Union with Christ makes us servants with him. We join Christ as lights to the nations. This is how it's working. This is how how you and I begin to read our Bibles and not freak out if certain promises were not given to us directly and wondering, is this promise yes for me in Christ? Even though it was given under a different covenant and to a different person, to a different people? Now, you could go online and see, Rick told me, I'll give you 50 minutes, 50 minutes for your faculty lecture, and it was 30 minutes more than that. So you've got to settle in and... Uh, and probably have a bag of chips and uh, sparkling water, but an hour and 20 minutes to get a full picture of what I'm trying to communicate. Um, But this was the diagram that I gave, that Old Testament promises come through the lens of Christ, and as they come through the lens, some of them come through the center and are maintained, and other ones come through the edges of that lens and get bent the Old Testament promises in New Covenant fulfillment. So you could go and hear the lecture or you could read, read it as well. It's all on my, on my website. We're going to pick up here next week because we're not through this testimony of the, serv- the servant And what he's about to give is set us up for the Gospel of Mark and understand the work that Jesus is doing in the Gospel of Mark. And it's so hopeful. But today we can celebrate light. That light has overcome darkness in our own lives and done it through the promised offspring of the woman. And if he's bringing light into the darkness, it must mean, it has to mean, that he's actually dressed address the problem with the the serpent. Because that serpent has had a stronghold on all of humanity ever since the days of the garden. All of them, all of us, born outside of that garden, separated from the life-giving presence of God. And if now He's coming, bringing light into darkness, it must mean He's addressed something fundamental in all reality on behalf of people like you and me that we can move from the oppressor and the enemy of God to one who is being redeemed, who's been broken, who is the oppressed, Isaiah 42. And now one who has moved from being blind and now being able to see light. Dear Lord, I thank you that you are our rock. In this text, you are our light. And how sweet it is to see light when we've been in darkness for a long time. Please hold the hearts of the hurting in this room. Let the wind of your Spirit blow upon them with encouragement 
I pray that if there are enemies of you in this room, that they would listen to the one who has a sword coming forth from his mouth. Pierce our hearts in a way that awakens new senses, moving us from death to life, from darkness to light, from blindness to sight, from deafness to hearing. Thank you that you have let salvation move from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, your salvation. Christ is our salvation. In him alone do we rest. Thank you, Father, that your Son served you perfectly all the way to saving those whom you set him out to save. Continue to work and build your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.